I wonder what is the biggest test of faith you've ever had. Uh, Take a few seconds now uh, and what time or circumstance comes to mind when you consider your biggest test of faith? Now, when we think of a test of faith, I assume that most of us think of a difficulty. Uh, Maybe it's losing a job or trouble at work. Uh, It might be the loss of a loved one or relationship difficulties. Uh, It might be a physical or mental illness uh, that you struggle with. Uh, Certainly non-Christians consistently on surveys say that the whole idea and concept of suffering uh, and personal experience with suffering is one of the big faith blockers are one of the big reasons why they don't accept faith for themselves. We don't like the idea of suffering, and rightly so, but I wonder if our perspective on that is more shaped by culture than the Bible. Uh, earlier this year, I read uh, the book Single Gay Christian by Gregory Coles. Uh, he's a young adult who wrestles with same-sex attraction, uh, even after praying that God would change his disposition, but he sees the clear teaching of scripture that to be in a same-sex relationship isn't an option for a follower of God. Uh, so he is single, gay, and a Christian. Uh, it, it is a brilliantly written book. I'd, I'd urge all of you to uh, get a copy and read. I read it in a day. I couldn't put it down. Uh, it is sensational. Let me just read a section to you now, though. Obedience is supposed to be costly. When Jesus told his followers to take up their crosses and follow him, he wasn't just calling them to place heftier checks in the offering plate or to put up with the occasional irritation at work. He was calling them to blood and sorrow and unspeakable agony. He was calling them to death. I'll follow you, we say to Christ so readily, watching the thorns dig into his forehead. Then moments later, we cry foul when we discover thorns of our own. Maybe the problem isn't that gay Christians have received an impossible task. Maybe the problem is that so many straight Christians have given themselves a task that is too easy, a cross that is too bearable. While gay Christians are expected to deny themselves in their desires for sex and family and intimacy, desires that feel so intrinsically part of their being, most straight Christians can simply channel those desires toward a single woman or man, get married, have kids, join a country club, attend a welcoming church where everything has been designed with people like them in mind, and chase the Jesus festooned brand of the American dream. Maybe the calling to gay Christian celibacy stands in 21st century America as a precious reminder of just how desperately, helplessly devoted we're meant to be to the cross of Christ. A reminder that every sacrifice we will make will pale in comparison to the sacrifice made on our behalf. Maybe the problem isn't that faith costs some of us too much, but it costs all of us too little. Now, I don't know about you, but I really like country club Christianity. I like being comfortable. I like a faith that I can just tack on to the end of my everyday life. It's just nice and easy, isn't it? Uh, We become so acclimatised to this culture, to materialism and the idol of comfort. Maybe the problem isn't that faith costs some of us too much, but that it costs all of us too little. Uh, I'm not denying the trial uh, that you have been through or are going through, 
but when I asked each one of us to think of a test of faith, I wonder how many of us thought of a time when we got a promotion or a pay rise or a large tax return. And my guess is that very few of us think of a financial windfall as a test of faith. I wonder if in our quest to remain comfortable, we've let our guard down against a greater danger. Trials can certainly test us, but they're unlikely to be the biggest risk that we'll face as we're sitting here in an air-conditioned room in, in suburban Sydney. Now, the clear warning of Scripture is that falling in love with this world and all of its shiny trinkets is a serious temptation, a test of faith that many in the church have sadly failed. Now, this morning, we're going to seek to understand the warning and exhortation that God gives his people in regards to material resources. But before we do this, let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would soften our hearts. Our Lord, as uh, I was preparing this and uh, considering this topic, uh, I know that it's easy to say words, uh, but it's hard to be open, uh, willing to let go of our comfort, uh, willing for you to speak the hard word to us. So we do pray that you would give us ears ready to listen and eyes ready to see you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, it's really important that we think hard about this topic and regularly about this topic as Christians. Uh, it's easy to spiritualise our faith uh, and never allow it to touch on everyday topics such as this, uh, but that's not the Bible's view. Uh, it's, it's interesting to consider that material wealth is a key topic in the Scriptures. In fact, one in ten verses in the Gospels directly deals with the topic of money. Uh, in the Bible, there's around 500 verses allocated to the topic of prayer. Uh, there's less than 500 verses given to the topic uh, of faith, but over 2,000 verses speak to the topic of money and possessions. Uh, we're given a lot of commands about money and possessions in Scripture. Uh, this topic shouldn't take us by surprise, uh, and the readings this morning aren't outliers in Scripture on this. Uh, so with that background, uh, Mel's going to read us uh, the two scriptural readings. The first reading comes from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 5. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave us as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. 
They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then they, and then by the will of God also to us. Thanks, Mel. I'm not sure if you notice the two distinct groups in those two passages. Uh, there's the have-nots, uh, sorry, the have spoken about in 1 Timothy and the have not spoken about uh, in 2 Corinthians. Uh, we're going to start this morning actually with the have-nots. Uh, so look at me with 2 Corinthians, that passage about the Macedonian churches. Uh, there's a number of remarkable things in that passage. Uh, so look at their generosity uh, and how their generosity in the midst of poverty, uh, poverty is described there in verse 1. Uh, it's a grace given to them by God. It's a really interesting phrase. Uh, verse 2 tells us that their giving was in the midst of a severe trial and extreme poverty. Uh, in the ancient world, there was a significant class gap. Uh, we're not talking about the Macedonian churches having an iPhone 5 when everyone's got an iPhone 8. Uh, there is a significant class gap. Uh, the middle class barely existed. Uh, so these people, if they are in extreme poverty, they are dirt poor. Uh, we also know from the ancient world uh, that there were some Greco-Roman aristocrats who actually ridiculed people who lived a simple lifestyle. Uh, so some scholars believe that it's possible uh, that one of the sources of the trials that these churches were facing was in response uh, to that. Uh, there's some speculation there, but either way, it's clear from uh, verse 2 there that in spite, or maybe even because of, their trials and poverty, they were overflowing with joy and rich generosity. And in verse 3, we see that they gave not just what they were able, uh, but they gave beyond that. Uh, there's no indication that they just gave the bare minimum, uh, that they lived a comfortable life and gave the extras. Uh, they didn't wait for the offering bags to pass around. Uh, verse 4 says that they were eager. They begged to participate. And uh, then verse 5 is a really helpful bookend for us. Uh, they gave to God's people because they're giving themselves to God. Uh, giving to God's work and God's people is just a natural extension once we've fully given ourselves to God. Have you met anyone like this? It's, it's like a homeless person giving you their own shirt off their own back because they see your need. It, it's, it's astonishing. This kind of attitude and action is otherworldly. How could these churches be like this? Uh, we actually get some clues from Scripture because uh, the church at Philippi and Thessalonica, uh, those churches were a couple of the Macedonian churches. Uh, so we get some hints from those passages. Uh, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Uh, we actually get a clue. Let's have a read through from uh, beginning at verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Um, do you notice the grammatical subject of those last couple of clauses there? Uh, he who began a good work in them will bring it to completion. Uh, the Philippians were the way they were because God was doing a work in them. Uh, God had done, was doing, and would complete something in them. Uh, their giving was just an outpouring of the gospel work of God in their lives. 
Uh, Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and beginning in verse 2. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. So why is the Thessalonian church the way that they were? Now we see there in verses 4 and 5, uh, they were loved by God, chosen by him, and the Holy Spirit is working powerfully in their lives. Uh, we serve a risen and crucified saviour. His spirit is living in us. Uh, the ability to let go of this world and all of its trinkets is an ability not of this world. It can only happen if he does work in us. You see, when he opens our eyes to see how wonderful he is and how much he's done for us, what's a thousand dollars in comparison to that? Or what's a what's million dollars in comparison to that? And what wouldn't you give for your non-Christian family and friends to know this God? Understanding the riches of Christ has to change our perspective on this world and its feeble wealth. Uh, the Macedonian church has got this. They knew this God and his gospel and they saw the gospel need. So they gave in response to that. The reality for us, though, is uh, we're not all that much like the Macedonian church in our socioeconomic context. Uh, we're far more likely to that group being spoken about in 1 Timothy. Uh, most of us probably think that materialism is something that people richer than us struggle with. Uh, but I'm not so sure that the stats let us off so lightly. Uh, have a look at this uh, recent map of Sydney, uh, which is broken up into groups uh, according to socio-economic prosperity. Uh, that dark green colour where the arrow is pointing is us in Epping. Uh, it's the darkest green, showing that we are in the top 10% of affluence in Sydney. As we look further afield to the rest of the state, we see how prosperous we really are. And then the picture is amplified as we look at the nation. Those of us who own our own homes in Epping, Easter or Beecroft are basically multi-millionaires. The average income in Epping is 40% higher than the national average. So as we look at 1 Timothy, we are the rich in this present world. Uh, There's a real warning for us in this. Uh, You'd think that having more means that we'd be able to give more. But research consistently debunks this thinking. For instance, in the US, Christian families with an income of up to $20,000 US each year, 8% of them were tithing, so giving 10% or more of their income as an offering and gifts. For families making more than $75,000 US, the number of tithing drops to just 1%. In fact, Christians today are giving less as a percentage of their income than Christians during the height of the Great Depression. The reality is that as our income increases, sadly for most of us, our spending on ourselves typically increases at a greater rate. We tell ourselves, just one more holiday, just one more renovation, 
just one more car upgrade, just one more new set of clothing, just one more fancy meal out, just one more. I'm not saying that any of those things are bad in and of themselves, but materialism and our quest for comfort have an insatiable hunger. It's too easy to let our guards down. So with that backdrop, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Now, we don't have time to dig in too deeply here, but let me just make a couple of quick points. Now, firstly, in verse 17, there's a call to not put our hope in our own wealth, but to put our hope in God and his riches. Uh, our financial advisors tell us that we need to set ourselves up for retirement, uh, have a good superannuation plan. Uh, there's some wisdom in that. But is it possible that our thirst for financial security is stifling our generosity? Hoping God, not in worldly riches. Secondly, verses 18 and 19 give us the formula for storing treasure in heaven. And we're told, do good, being rich in good deeds, and be generous, willing to share. It's best to understand these things as related. So it's not saying uh, just do good but be stingy. Uh, and it's not saying give away your money but kind of wash your hands clean and, and don't get involved. You don't need to worry about that. No, do good deeds with our money. Give our money but be personally involved as well. Now, many of you know that my day job is working at Crusaders where I'm involved in schools ministry, school camps and holiday camps. And one of the things I really like about our crew holiday camps is that the leaders on those camps actually pay to lead on camps. Uh, now, it's helpful because it helps us keep down the costs of camper fees so that we can get more kids on camp. Uh, but I like it that they've got a personal involvement as well. It costs them something to be there. Um, not only that, but non-Christian parents, I can think of a number of times where non-Christian parents and our kids have been staggered by this. Uh, you, you look at most vacation care programs, for instance, the staff there are getting paid a casual rate, typically. Uh, so to learn that their leaders are not only giving up their time and sleep, not only are they not getting paid, but they are actually paying out of their own po- uh, pocket, that's a huge witness for the gospel, that people would do that. Each year, more than a 1,000 young adults give up their time give up an income stream for those with casual work or give up their annual leave and pay to tell kids about Jesus on a crew camp? What does that tell you about their commitment to the gospel? What does it tell you about the treasure in heaven that they have? James Boyce was a Presbyterian minister who explains treasure in heaven this way. The money you spend on yourself, which is necessary up to a point, will not produce treasure in heaven. It will be gone with the spending and its benefits will perish when you do. But the money you spend on others, which should be a rising percentage of your income as God prospers you, that treasure will last forever. It will be translated into eternal treasures to be presented to you at the Lord's coming. Imagine the scene. You're standing in heaven with all the saints around the throne and a tall African man taps you on the shoulder. I know you. You're the one who sponsored that pastor who told me and my family about Jesus. That's a treasure. Or a teenage girl comes up to you and says, I know you. 
You and your family gave up your holidays and your money to go on that beach mission where I became a Christian. Or one of these little kids down the back comes up to you and says, I know you, you're at Epping Church of Christ and gave your offering faithfully and was rostered on the crash program so that I put my trust in Jesus. That's treasure. Larry spoke with us last week about treasure in heaven and we looked at Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus tells us to store treasure in heaven. Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I used to think that that passage was uh, saying that uh, our finances are a bit like a thermometer, that they measure the warmth of our hearts towards God. Uh, Now I think that principle is true, but I don't think that's what this passage is saying. I actually think that it's saying that our use of finances is like a thermostat that adjusts the temperature of our hearts. There's a real financial need for us to support the work of the gospel. Uh, This church has staff who need food. Uh, The electricity company doesn't provide power for free. Christian and mission organisations around this country and the world have real financial needs. There is, a, there is a gospel and financial need to give. But part of the reason we're commanded to give is for our own good. When we give, it trains our hearts to not be attached to this world. Now, early in this chapter of 1 Timothy, we're actually told to flee from the love of money. Giving our money is a brilliant way to guard our hearts and further the gospel while we do it. So if it's a change of heart we fundamentally need, and it's a work of God to do this, I wonder how many of us pray that God would give us the grace of generous giving. When was the last time that any of us prayed that? When was the last time that I prayed for that? If we're serious about giving generously, our first step is to pray that God would do that work in us. Uh, But there's some additional steps we can take on top of this as well. Uh, We can look to simplify our lives. Uh, Maybe it's cutting back on the number of coffees we buy at at cafes each week or the number of meals we have out. Uh, Maybe it's buying new clothes less often or being more modest uh, and more irregular in our car upgrades. Uh, Maybe it's holidaying less extravagantly. might be big or small, But where is the Holy Spirit prompting you to cut back your spending and simplify your life? Uh, None of us can be the judge of anyone else in this regard, but all of us will give an account to God one day for how we use his resources. Uh, And then finally, we should plan our giving in order that we can give beyond our means. Uh, This means reviewing our income and spending in order that we can give as much as possible for the sake of the gospel. Uh, So giving includes giving to this church. Uh, It also includes other Christian ministries and missions in this country and around the world. Uh, It means generously sharing with other believers and non-Christians. It means being intentional, setting aside what we'll give or setting up direct debits so that we give regardless of what we feel like in that moment. Let me finish this morning with the words of Howard Guinness. Uh, Howard Guinness was one of the pioneers of school and university uh, mission in this country. He asked these questions. Where are the young men and women of this generation who will hold their lives cheap and be faithful even unto death? 
Where are those who will live dangerously and be reckless in his service? Where are his lovers, those who love him and the souls of people more than their own reputations or comfort or very life? Where are the men and women who say no to self, who take up Christ's cross to bear it after him, who are willing to be nailed to it in college or office, home or mission field, who are willing, if needed, to bleed and suffer and to die on it? Where are the men and women of vision who have seen the king in his beauty for whom all else is counted as rubbish so that they may win Christ? Where are the men and women who are willing to pay the price of vision? Let's pray. Lord God, you are so good. You gave up the comforts and the prestige of the throne of heaven that you would come down and give your life for us to make us your treasure. Lord, we do pray that we would treasure you above all, that we would hold loosely to the things of this world and be generous in the use of the resources that you've given us for the sake of others so that some might know you, so that you would be honoured so that we might store up for ourselves a rich treasure awaiting for us in the next age. In Jesus' name, amen.